Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 Third Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness to us. Um, And as we talked about last week, you made us dependent creatures. Um, We have limits and boundaries which are meant to drive us to you. So Lord, as we today... um, begin to look at over the next three weeks what happens when we encounter those limits and how we might respond with anxiety, with anger, or with um, depression. We ask that you uh, work in us miracles of proper uh, reorientation of our minds, proper processing of our own emotions, proper care for one another, but most importantly, Lord, uh, proper obedience to you. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. We live in a pretty remarkable era, especially if you consider all that America has been through politically with the pandemic the last three years. Um, A global data firm has done a study in America's, quote, quality of life index is actually 20% higher than it was even in 2012. We have more technology, more abilities, more awareness, more resources, and more opportunities than we've ever had, but have you considered what it's producing in our culture? It seems that with every, that in lockstep with every technological breakthrough, every new discovery, every new level of global connectivity, we're finding more and more questions. We're running into those created limits that God gave us when he made us man and not God. We're faced with more things we didn't know about and we have more problems than we know what to do with. In the past three years, the national rate of individuals in our country who identify as having anxiety has gone from 32% to 62%. A landmark UK study tracked 2.5 million people over the last decade and realized a correlating rise in medically diagnosed anxiety disorders, but more specifically, that prescription drugs for anxiety have gone up nearly 200% since 2012, with a specific growth of uh, young adults aged 18 to 25. But more than that, another medical journal has reported that over the last few years, Clinically diagnosed anxiety amongst adolescents has increased nearly 25% each year. As of 2020, one out of every kid between the ages of 3 and 17 has been diagnosed with some sort of anxiety disorder. Your experience with anxiety might be as near as darkness itself. It might be as distant that you think that perhaps this is just an overdiagnosed softening of the normal human experience. And debate and discussion does surround every side of this issue, but one thing we as Christians should know with great clarity is despite what is unknown, God cares for the anxious soul. In many ways, anxiety is a normal part of our fallen human experience. It's common to all of us. In other ways, there are those who wrestle with crippling, debilitating, medical, and habitual anxiety. Yet regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, God's word holds out hope for us today. As we take a break from our study through Luke to do a series called Talking to Yourself, today we're going to wrestle with how we talk to ourselves about our own anxiety. In a world that's talking to us, with emotions that are talking to us, is God talking to you? Are you careful to listen to what he says about your own experience? And today what we're going to see is this. Our main point is that anxious hearts find relief by resting 
in Jesus' righteousness. Anxious hearts find relief by resting in Jesus' righteousness. And we're going to see this in three ways with Isaiah 8, which was just read for us as our home base. And we're going to see first, we're going to see the reality of anxiety. And that's going to be in Isaiah 8, verses uh, 11 through 15. Then secondly, we're going to look at verses 16 through 22, and Isaiah is going to help us reset our anxiety. That is to align our experience and our understanding of anxiety in light of God and his understanding of us. And then lastly, we're going to apply this by resting in our anxiety together. It might be a long sermon, and I do that so that you all feel anxiety, and we can apply this immediately today. <laughs> Before we get rolling, uh, I want you to imagine a world where there was a superpower nation who for centuries enjoyed prosperity, economic growth, and safety. Yet despite all of that, this era is seemingly coming to an end as global superpowers grow in the shadows and increase their territory into foreign lands day by day. Moreover, there is in their own world political, economic tension, division, dissension, controversy, and conspiracy, ripping through, dividing dinner tables and streets, clogging the airways. While this may, might sound familiar to our circumstance today in America, this is the real context of Isaiah chapter 8. The time frame is the late or mid to late 8th century BC, before Christ. And the nation is Israel, which has just been torn apart by a civil war. And the northern kingdom of Judah is fearful of the alliance the now southern kingdom of Israel has made with Syria as they increasingly become agitated with the kingdom of Judah. Judah's king Ahaz and his people are anxious, fearful, worrisome, even though, if you have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 8, in Isaiah chapter 7, God promises enduring care. He promises that there will be a child born, and by the time that child is old, these superpowers will look like nothing. But despite God's comfort in the midst of their fears, anxiety, controversy, dread, and fear typify their experience. And it's to this need that Isaiah begins this oracle, this message to his king and his people in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 15. Would you consider that with me this morning? For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both, the house, to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble upon it, they shall fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken. And so here we see our first point this morning, as we see the reality of anxiety. Do you realize in your condition to have ever been anxious is to find yourself in the middle of a biblical experience? 
Whether it's America in 2022, whether it was Britain in the 1700s, Rome in the 5th century, or here Israel in the 8th century BC, it seems fear, dread, and anxiety at, at personal and, and uh, governmental levels is inescapable. Well, why is that? Because there's always something to be anxious about. How many of you have had that portrait, uh, perfect picture of anxiety? where you have a dream and you have, uh, you have a presentation to make it work or a test at school and you arrive there only to find out what? You have on no clothes. You're naked. And this anxious fear that seems to be for some reason common to all humanity is actually the experience of Adam and Eve when they fell from obedience. Their first experience was actually an experience of anxious fear. They were created in God's perfect garden, in a perfect relationship with a perfect being and with one another. They lived in undisturbed intimacy. There was no threat, no condition, no circumstance which would disquiet them. And that was seen namely in that they were naked. And there was complete peace. There was no vulnerability at all. Adam wasn't worried about getting poked or jabbed or getting a rash. Eve wasn't anxious about her body image. They had total peace. None of them felt they had anything to hide from even the all-seeing God who walked in the garden with them. But notice their experience that one day when they listened to the devil and chose to reject their limitations and try to be God themselves. This is Genesis 3 verses 6 through 8. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. God made us to dwell in dependence upon him. We saw that last week. But in perfect intimacy with him. Intimacy is built around comfort and safety, a lack of threat internally or externally. And sin coming into this garden disrupted that perfect intimacy. Because the intimacy of being with God was removed by sin, which made them unlike God, unable to be in his presence, anxiety became the first experience of fallen humanity. They began to cover what felt vulnerable. They see in here that they are worried about themselves. They're anxious about themselves. They knew that there are parts that they needed to hide from one another. That was a completely new experience. They're anxious about this perfect garden they were in. Where they walked in peace, they now created coverings to to cover themselves from the external world they now live in. But they were also anxious about encountering the holy God against whom they had just sinned. We today sit in the line of Adam and the line of Eve and we are anxious because at root we have no intimacy with God. Our sin has separated us from that and our sin, even for those who walk with Jesus today, 
bears an experience of separation for us today. And I want to make a distinction here. Experientially, those who wrestle with anxiety often wrestle with depression, and they kind of feed into each other and are two sides of the same coin. But we're going to talk about depression in a couple weeks. Next week, we'll talk about anger. The following week, we'll talk about depression. And so I want to kind of divide what is often hard to divide in our experience here. And so I want to give us a little bit of um, some examples of what it is we're talking about to categorize our own experiences. Depression, if you've ever been one who wrestled with depression, depression compresses. It drags you down. Uh, it makes you feel burdened by what is present in that moment. Anxiety, on the flip side, bubbles up. It's like a boiling pot of energy that sits on your soul. In fact, the poet Walt Whitman, writing on his own anxiety, wrote and called it his electric soul. So stimulated that it was unpleasant to him. And biblically speaking, this idea of excitement and stimulation is behind the words used uh, to describe the anxious experience. Here in Isaiah 8, that word dread is actually a word for excitement, but it's a terrible excitement. In both the Hebrew and in the Greek, we have words for anxiety, but there are other words that communicate different ways in which we encounter that. There's anxious awe, anxious concern, anxious stirring up, like one stirs up a pot, anxious haste. Generally, the depressed person is downcast because of what is at that moment. The anxious person is excited in a dreadful way about what might come in the next moment. They're worried about the unknown potential of what is out there, and they are so agitated to act in such a way, even if that is withdrawing or distraction, that they might control that experience. They're overwhelmed with the feeling they need to do something, even if they're crippled by knowing what that something is. And because we live in a broken world, and because God created us, aspects of this anxiety are God's gift to us. If you're out hiking in the woods and you hear a snarl behind you, only a fool would say, I'm good. It's God's good alarm system that you would take note and assess, is this safe or is this dangerous? When you're about to sin, and your heart rate is elevated, and you feel that, that, that sinking feeling in your gut, that is God's kind gift that you would second-guess your decision and perhaps fall back into obedience. Jesus himself experienced great distress and anxiety here on earth. In fact, we'll look at this uh, as we continue our series in the book of Luke. But if you look at Luke chapter 12, Jesus is talking to his disciples about the cross that is coming his way. And look at how Jesus, our Lord, describes his experience in Luke 12, verse 50. He said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. That word distressed there is a word Luke obviously wrote the book of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. And in Acts 18, he uses this same word, translated here as distressed, to talk about Paul being wholly consumed with the act of preaching. When Jesus looked at the agonies of the cross, he was wholly consumed by distress. Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians Chapter 11 says this about his experience. Chapter 11, verse 28. And apart from these other things, there is daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. If you have your Bible open, you'll notice up on top of these things, shipwrecks, beaten, 
imprisonment, torture, flogging. Also, I'm anxious, Paul says. (laughs) And if you're familiar with God's word, something should stand out to us about that. Because no two people warn as much against anxiety as our Lord Jesus and his servant Paul. And yet both experienced the same sort of troubled and anxious spirit that they themselves were warning people with. But there's a distinction. Jesus, in the midst of his distress, we also see Luke use words like he was troubled in his spirit, did not sin. In fact, in Joshua 22, verse 24, it says that these eastern tribes of Israel had anxiety that their kids would forget the goodness of the Lord. And out of that fearful anxiety, they built an altar to remind their, their kids of God's goodness to them. And Phineas, the priest, and the other tribes were thinking for a moment that perhaps these eastern tribes had started to worship another god. And so they explained their desire. They explained their anxiety. And the priest, in looking upon it, no priest was as zealous as Phineas for the glory of the Lord. And yet Phineas heard their anxiety. And in verse 30, it says, this was good to their eyes. It was a good fear, a good anxiety that led them to seek certainty with the Lord. So is anxiety good or bad? Is it sinful or is it not? It depends. It depends upon what you do with it. Isn't this the exact point that Isaiah is making in Isaiah chapter eight? Consider again verses 11 through 13. For the Lord thus spoke to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and him be your dread. We live in a world where anxiety is sometimes safe, sometimes sinful, but always present because our intimacy has been disrupted. There are dangers, threats, and turmoil. But as Isaiah describes the fear and dread of the anxious heart, his command to God's people is, do not be anxious like everyone else is anxious. Do not be anxious over the same things that everyone is anxious about. And if you'll notice... Isaiah critiques much of the bad advice we give each other. Maybe you've received this, or maybe you've given this. Our cookie-cutter advice for someone who wrestles with anxiety is generally what? Don't be anxious, as if we didn't think about that. (laughs) But that's not where Isaiah ends, is it? It's in part, he does say, do not fear, do not worry, do not be in dread. It's actually the beginning of what Paul says in the book of Philippians to us as well. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious, about anything. But this prohibition is not where Isaiah or Paul end. Isaiah continues and he actually says this. He says, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. The same verb he just said in the negative is now applied here again. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Paul continues in Philippians 4 where he says this, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So what's the point? In a world where anxiety is common, the Christian is to be distinct by knowing who to bring their anxiety to and what to ultimately be anxious about. 
To be someone who has that bubbling electric soul about the fear of what might come, we are to bring all of that experience and submit it to the Lord. And in going to him, we begin to find care and peace. When our experience with God becomes the centerpiece of our experience with anxiety, we encounter something profound. This tension that that paralyzes us in anxiety. We are anxious because we're fearful, and then the call is, go to the fearful God. (laughs) And it's only when we take God at his word and move towards that which seems to compound the issue that something astonishing happens. Did you notice that? What does this fearful, dreadful God become to those who seek him, he becomes a stronghold. He becomes a a sanctuary, is what Isaiah says. And this is what leads to our second point this morning. This is the resetting of our anxiety. The resetting of our anxiety. We need to reset our anxiety in light of who the Lord is and what the Lord says. We need to think about our anxiety differently, and God's word helps us do this. The anxious person is anxious because we have a desire to resolve something. And the Bible actually pushes us to do something that seems counterintuitive to what we fear. We're driven to do something, even if that something is distraction, even if that something is passivity. And guess what? God knows you have that temptation. God knows that when you're anxious, you are going to flail like a fish out of water, hoping to find something to relieve that. But God here in Isaiah 8 wants to help you reset what it is you do in light of the hope offered in the world. Let's read this offer of reset in Isaiah 8, verses 16 through 22. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. In the face of a world where voices are endless, where mediums chirp and advice tweets, where are God's disciples to go? To the teaching and to the testimony. This doesn't mean we don't turn to each other in the church. It doesn't mean we don't turn to medical experts. But it does mean that the the first reaction of the Christian is to realize the living God who created you, who gives you, Paul says in Acts 17, life and breath and everything, has a unique perspective on our experience as humans. It means we get to assess all of God's common grace of medicine and counseling and therapy through the primary lens given in verse 20. Three things he says, God's teaching, God's testimony, and God's word. To fail to assess our experience and our understanding in light of the God who created us, knows us, and knows the way back is to do what Isaiah says. It's to listen to those who have no dawn. Listen to those who have no solution. No answer, no hope. 
Verse 21 and 22 describe this almost humorous, if it were not prevalent in our society, reality of the person, the one who follows God, who wrestles with anxious dread. But when that fearful electricity bubbles up in his soul, he doesn't turn to fear the Lord. Instead, he turns to the earth. He turns to those who have no dawn. And what happens? They encounter darkness. And what do they do? Then they shake their fist at God and they're like, why is my heart upset? Why am I in turmoil? Why am I anxious? All the while they have refused to turn to the God who is living and desiring to help them. You see, the hierarchy of turning to the world or turning to God is the crux of our experience with anxiety. If you'll look back at Isaiah verses 8, 14, and 15, you'll notice, we'll do this in a little bit, that it's primarily your realization of who God is, his holiness, and your relationship to him, which determines if that same God will be to you a sanctuary or a stumbling block. And we'll talk more about this later, but what we see right now is that we must reset our anxiety first and foremost with the reality of who God is. Because all of our anxiety at a root is because we are separated from this God. This is where the whole discussion starts. It's sometimes where it ends and sometimes there's bunches in between, but this is where it begins. So what does it look like for us to reset our anxiety? Well, it means we need to understand two things from a biblical perspective. First, it's causes and then how we might respond to it biblically. As we talked about last week, we need to understand our own creational limits that God made us with but we also need to understand the new situational realities that sin brought. We were made, not God. We are going to run into places where we do not have control. That's a creational limit. That's a good thing. That's where we look to the God who does have control. But additionally, because of sin, our hearts are morally broken. And also our world is broken by the effects of sin. We have a moral problem and we are the world's problem. Our sin has corrupted this world And so we can assess these causes. We can have anxiety because of the situational reality of a broken world. Have you been one who's had to wait on a medical test? That's normal anxiety in a broken world. It's no sin that one gets cancer. It's no sin that we have to have medical tests. But we feel the anxiety of that. We can be anxious because we make situationally foolish decisions. I was listening to a counselor once describing him attempting to help this man who was in with reoccurring anxiety, and it just came up in conversation that this man fell asleep every night watching horror films. (laughs) And he said, I have a novel idea. Maybe don't. (laughs) And sure enough, as that happened, he felt himself less anxious the following morning. If you go to bed watching the news tell you how terrible the world is, If you wake up and pound coffee until you fall back in bed that night and you wonder why your heart rate's a little elevated and you're sweaty throughout the day, you might have situational factors that are not themselves sinful, but if we are not careful and aware, those not sinful causes of anxiety can cause us to sin in our anxiety. And this is the second situational cause. This is our own moral brokenness. Our sin can cause anxiety. Imagine a kid who you told not to eat a cookie. He eats the cookie, and then he begins his anxious work of brushing his teeth, of maybe wiping off his face, of hoping you don't get so close to him that you could smell the delicious goodness that he just ate. He is anxious about being caught. That anxiety itself isn't sinful, but it exists because he sinned. 
And when that electric soul bubbles up, he can choose in that to then sin all the more to resolve that anxiety, right? He's anxious because he might get caught. And so what's the solution? Get rid of this anxiety by adding more deceit and more deception and more lies. We can be anxious because we are trying to cover up or live in sin. But sometimes our anxiety isn't caused by our sin. Sometimes it isn't even caused by the brokenness outside in our world. Sometimes our anxiety is caused because of the brokenness inside of our own bodies. Both the kinds of anxiety we just talked about are signs, sometimes God-given signs, that something is wrong. That you should stop doing this. That you should maybe repent and choose obedience. But sometimes our body warns us and gets excited about things which are not necessarily sinful or neither are they situationally dangerous. And this is that third category on those who wrestle with acute, ongoing medical anxiety. As a human, I'm very familiar with these first two categories, as all of us are. We've all had situational brokenness in our world, and we have all sinned, and that has caused us anxiety. But I also know the unwanted friend of walking with persistent, unwanted, unreasonable, and undiscernible anxiety. I know what it's like to live in a broken body. And I say this not to say, well, this now has more meaning because Tyler is anxious. Therefore, he can tell you what to do with it. In fact, my experience says the exact opposite. I have no idea what to do with this. But if there is peace that I have found, it is to the teaching and to the testimony. It is to run primarily to the one place we often in our anxiety never go the place that seems to give the least amount of felt need. In my own anxiety, I have walked and tasted the darkness of trying to placate and distract my anxiety by running to the things of the world. And what I have found is I am the man, not turning to God, but instead shaking my fist, saying, why have you left me all the while I have never returned? There came a very distinct point in my anxiety where I realized that all of my fear produced this electricity that had me moving towards anything and everything except for consideration of God and his word. Now, there are all sorts of circumstantial things we encounter living in a broken world. There are medical issues, situational issues, which might cause anxiety, and those need to be dealt with. We need to turn off the horror films. But as a matter of first importance, the anxious person needs to take all of their energy and begin by turning to God's advice first and foremost instead of the advice of the world. And I want to highlight for us five biblical responses to anxiety that I have found helpful to me, that will perhaps be helpful to you regardless of where we fall on the spectrum. Not only do we need to understand what causes our anxiety, but we need to know when we're excited and we feel like we just need to do something, what would God's word have us do? Well, first, is that we repent. This is for those who have been anxious because of their sin or those who have begun to sin in their anxiety. When I was in college, I was very driven to have good grades to outperform my peers, but here's the problem. I can't control my peers. So I was anxious about that, not being the top of my class. And because I was anxious about that, I sought to remedy that anxiety, and I did it through lust and pornography. My anxiety itself was not sinful. It was my limit. I am one person and I can control one person. But what I did to relieve that was sinful. 
It's not always a sin to be anxious, but it's often very easy to sin in our anxiety. That is to think that obeying God will compound our anxiety and not ultimately help with it. And if we taste the darkness of this foolish deceit here in looking at repentance, we have the wonderful privilege of turning back to God. Here's the hope we have in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For those who are anxious on account of sin, the cross makes a way back where we are cleansed. Second, we can respond. Sometimes we find our anxiety isn't sinful and it's not immediately causing us to sin, but it's like leaving the door open on a cold winter's day and the wind blows in a bunch of unpleasant things. If you've been needing to pay a bill, but you're worried about the balance of your bank account and if you can buy things, if you need to have a conversation with an employee and maybe talk to them about their job performance, we can be anxious about what moving towards that means and so we don't do it. And what we do is we prolong that feeling of anxiety and it actually makes situations worse. Anxious people often focus at step 100 without ever being willing to take step one because we want that control because we worry about all the circumstantial threats in this world. But I was super helped by this. This didn't come out in the sermon when I preached it. But in my own anxiety, when we preached through Luke and Jesus feeding the 5,000, probably 20,000 in whole, Jesus goes to his disciples and he says, feed them. And they say, we can't. There's no way we could get to step 100. But what does Jesus say? He says, all right, break them into groups of 50. You can do that, can't you? And so they went and they broke them up into groups of 50. And then what did they do? They turned back to Jesus. And Jesus gave them exactly what they needed to do the next thing. You see, we sometimes believe the lie that everything is most helpful to us except the act of simple obedience. But the simplest, smallest step of obeying Jesus and responding rightly to him is the best place to start our path back from anxiety. That's what it looks like to respond. It's to know step 100 might come, but step one comes first. Third, we remind ourselves. This is where our creational limits matter. Anxious people are often anxious because we're not omniscient, therefore we don't know what's next, and we're not omnipotent, therefore we can't control what's next. But we will never be omniscient and omnipotent. Why? Because we are not God. If you're going to be anxious every time you realize you're not God, you're setting your life up for a life of misery. The anxious person should be familiar with the confession of the psalmist in Psalm 127, where he says this, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he that is the Lord gives sleep to his beloved. We are not God, which means we have the wonderful privilege of trusting the one who is and reminding ourselves of that on a daily level. Fourth, this might be one that doesn't make sense except to those who wrestle with that more acute anxiety. This is the, the response of reorienting our hearts. Oftentimes, those who suffer with acute anxiety, we get anxious about things that are themselves irrational. That is to say, if you came up to me and you were in community group and you're asking me about my anxiety, I would say something to you about what it's causing it and you would say, that's the dumbest thing in the world to be anxious about. <laughs> and anyone who's anxious knows that. They know how silly, they know how trivial, and they know how foolish that is and that compounds anxiety. And then we begin to see the warnings that Jesus and Paul gave about sinning in our anxiety. 
And then we wonder, well, now, not only is it foolish, but is it, is it sinful? And we don't know what to do. And we get shortness of breath, and our chest tightens. And this is where we remember Paul's wonderful words to those who have no idea what's going on in Romans 8, verses 26 through 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When I don't know what's going on in my heart, when I can't put my finger on the direct cause, the Holy Spirit does. And we need to reorient our lives around the God who knows us better than we know ourselves. This is what I do. Anxious people often compound their feelings of anxiety because we're not breathing right. You'd think that's pretty intuitive. Breathe, it's normal. But we fail at that. (laughs) And so I actually sync it up with my breathing to just help at a physiological level to help me have clarity of thought. And what I do is I turn this into a prayer. And when I inhale... I remind myself and I pray, literally, I did this last night. I was anxious before sermon on anxiety. Who would think? Um, I pray, Holy Spirit, come down. Holy Spirit, come into my heart and the parts I do not know and know me because you are the spirit of God itself. And as I breathe out, I pray, Holy Spirit, go up. Holy Spirit, take what I do not understand into the presence of my Father who will not mock me for my fears, who will not belittle me for my anxiety, but who will care for me. And I have to pray and remind myself that God is who I reorient all of my experience around. And lastly, and I say this carefully, recreate. I say this carefully because in our anxiety, we ought to do something. Go for a walk, take a break, play with your kids, go to the gym. And I say this carefully because uh, biblical distraction, biblical recreation is different than worldly distraction and recreation. Biblical distraction seeks to return to the issue with new clarity. Worldly distraction turns into delusion where you never go back. You simply distract yourself from what's wrong and hope that your distraction fixes the situation on its own. That's not how we process any of this. But Jesus models in preaching to those who have anxiety what this sort of recreation, this taking a break, this getting away looks like and speaking to the anxious soul. And we'll see this in Luke later on. He says, look at the lilies. Look at the birds of the air. What is he doing? He's saying, stop looking at yourself. Stop thinking about yourself. Take a break. Smell a flower. Draw a picture. But then what does he do? He brings it back. And he says, oh, really? While you were going for a run, did, did the world still turn? Was there still oxygen to breathe? Did gravity still hold you on the ground? If God's providence has dictated the whole world and given you the ability to take that break, do you not think that God will be careful and loving in this moment for you? We could take a break. We could recreate. It's by walking through these resetting exercises that we are able in a biblical way to process right causes and right responses so we can answer this question. Is my anxiety sinful or is it safe? Am I fearfully encountering concerns in the world and turning and responding like those who have no dawn? Or am I encountering things in this world, rational or irrational, but I'm taking them and responding to them with a proper fear of God?
And here's the kicker. Sometimes we could walk through all these things. We could look at these wonderful five tools that all somehow begin with R and God's kind providence. We could do them. We could deal with physiological solutions of looking at your diet, your sleep, talking with your doctor. And the anxiety can still remain. But this is where if we've assessed first, if this is sinful, if God's calling me to repent, if he's calling me to change something in my posture to him, and we could say, no, I don't believe it's sinful at this time, then we have the difficult privilege of realizing that this anxiety, though unwelcomed, is a safe anxiety. In the brokenness of our bodies and the limitations of our experience, anxiety sometimes clings to us as closely as humanity itself. But when we assess it in light of God's word, we continue to walk with it. And this is our last point today. This is resting in our anxiety. And this is aptly titled because I don't say resting from our anxiety. God maybe has brought that to you. God's brought that to me at various times and praise God that one day that will be taken finally and fully from us. But sometimes we need to learn to rest in our anxiety. And is it not this very thing that Isaiah is preaching to in chapter eight? That you, O oh anxious of heart, would find rest here in the midst of it, even while this turmoil, God's own judgment in Isaiah is coming against you. This is pictured most perfectly in Psalm 23, where we read this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me behind or beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Did you notice the unique context of that psalm? Everyone loves that psalm, but we act like the middle doesn't exist. <laughs> we want all of the dwelling forever and none of the doom. We want all of the emerald green pastures and none of the enemies lined up at the table with us. But this is where we often walk. And there we remind ourselves of who walks with us. There is he with his rod to discipline and his staff to protect. Anxiety in the world is only resolved not through the removal of hostility, but through the retrieval of intimacy with the shepherd. Look back at two portions of Isaiah, right? We're gonna do Bible study here. I want, I want us to pay attention to what the center of anxiety is. We're beginning in verse uh, 14 and 15. And he, that is the holy Lord of hosts, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both the houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Skip down to verse 20. To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, this, this God's word, 
it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they'll be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth. That is, they turn upward in frustration and they look to the earth with optimism. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into outer darkness. So here's what I call the anatomical spine of anxiety. Do you see the center of it? For those who refuse to fear God, for those who in their sin stand apart from him, for those whose hope is in intimacy with the world, your anxiety is fitting. You stand apart from God. You stand apart from the promise of daybreak. You stand in ever and only darkness. At the core and spine of our anxiety is ultimately your relationship with God. He is the one who brings safety and comfort. He is the solution to all our anxiety in an anxious world. And for those who stand apart from him, there is no relief. There is only empty distraction and consuming anxiety. We are anxious because we know in this fallen world, things are not right and I am not all right. Which means more than anything else to apply a biblical term to our experience is that we desire righteousness for something to be made right. We want light to come out of this darkness. If you have your Bibles open, right in verse 22, the end of verse 8, they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness and gloom and anguish and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. But look at what comes next, chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt in the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. As we study the book of Luke, this rings in our ears. For out of Galilee comes Jesus the light of the nations, fulfilling this prophecy word for word in Matthew 4. And Jesus' call immediately after fulfilling this prophecy is, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. God brings light to those who walk in the darkness of anxiety by bringing the gospel of repentance through Jesus, his son. His son who would know anxiety. You see, because Jesus came in the flesh, anyone who hopes in him has the relief of knowing our greatest fear, our greatest anxiety will never happen. You will never be forsaken by God. Nothing, neither height nor depth, nor past nor present, nor angels, nor powers, nor principalities will ever be able to threaten what has been won for you in the blood of Jesus Christ. But Jesus lived his whole life knowing that he would not be spared that fear that he would cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knowingly walked into the unknown pain of the cross to experience your punishment, to show you that your anxiety is justified, that sin is a real problem, but that we now have righteousness 
in Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed in that garden that if there were another way to resolve his anxious despair, if there was anything else, the son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the one who in triune perfection for all eternity knew nothing but love and blessedness with the father, cried out to his father for another way. And the father heard it. And in this wonderfully divine mystery, both pursued the cross joyfully. Both subjected themselves to obedience willingly to show us that even here, walking into the buzzsaw of God's divine wrath, obedience gives hope for the anxious in heart. Because of what Jesus did, because he subjected himself to the wrongness of the world, we receive rightness. Jesus's rightness. Romans 8 verses 21 through 22. For we know, am I in the right place here? Is that what I have? Romans 3. I don't know why I'm in Romans 8. Romans 3, 21 and 22. For although they... Nope, let's just slow down and read. Not all 21s are created equal. 321. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, where is the righteousness? The righteousness, the rightness, the restoration, the relief of anxiety of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We have through Jesus a righteousness which gives peace even when it doesn't feel like it. Even when our bodies are broken, our Christ is not even when our experience is hindered, his righteousness is not. We have intimacy restored with God, our greatest fear and our deepest dread through Jesus himself. And this father cares for your experience. One of the deepest thorns I've had to bear is my anxiety. It's been painful, it's been difficult, it's been prayerful with the elders. But this last year, it's been compounded in seeing my own son wrestle with deep, debilitating anxiety. And what's beautiful is my heart breaks for him. And there I see the truth behind all these theological platitudes we throw around, that that God cares for me. If an imperfect father can give hope to his son, how much more the heavenly father hope to his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. And so as my son and I have walked through this, there are two questions we ask each other. And there's actually, kids, if you're interested, uh, Owen wanted to give you something today. We made a list before going to school of, of tips and verses to help with anxiety. And it'll be back at the info desk. And guess what? I need them too. And so if you want that, that'll be back there. But there's two questions I want to leave you guys with today. As we wrestle in the face of our electric souls to make decisions for obedience, we ask first, is it safe? And this is where we vet out all those circumstantial things. And we see, is there a sin that I need to stop doing? Is this dangerous and foolish? And do I need to choose another way? This is where we see if this anxiety is helpful or unhelpful. But sometimes... Even if the act itself is safe, we feel brokenness in our bodies. 
our souls are screaming within us. And that's where we ask, is it obedient? And if we say yes, we ask one final question. Where is safety? And we answer each other. Safety is walking with Jesus. Wherever Jesus walks, my righteousness and my hope, there is what I speak to my soul. That is what we tell ourselves. Safety is knowing that what I fear in separation from God is greater than the fears of this world so I can cling with all my heart to the one who holds me to the Father in desperate intimacy. We cling to the cross because the cross gives hope even through the veil of fearful anxiety that the other side of obedience is always loving kindness with the Father. The righteousness of Jesus allows us to remind ourselves when our chests are burning and our lungs are discomforted and our mind is racing that there is nothing safer than walking with Jesus. Walt Whitman, who knew anxiety himself, wrote of it and concluded his poem saying this. He says, I throw myself upon your breast, my father. I cling to you so close that you cannot unloose me. Kiss me, father. Breathe to me while I hold you close. The secret murmuring I envy. We live in a world of chirpers and mutterers. But beneath the cacophony of sounds is the murmur you need. The murmur anxious apostles give. We see this murmur in 1 Peter 5, verse 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. One day it's going to end. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Jesus wants your anxiety. He wants your fears because he cares for you. One day in resurrected life, he will remove it all together, but today he wants what's present. He asks you to give it to him and to walk even when the valley is dark. So here I say to those who have never come, here is safety. To those I say who walk in the valley of the shadow of death, here is comfort. To those who sit at a table with an enemy, even when that enemy is your own body, here is intimacy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Let's pray. Lord, where words fail, your Holy Spirit picks up. And this man, this pastor, has found no human word, no earthly experience more helpful than seeing the nearness of the God who walks with me through the cross. So this morning, let our words be few. As we look to the teaching and the testimony, the darkness pierced by light, the shepherd who walks us home. 
Amen.